this is the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the centre, please go to our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash show me. I am Dr Catherine Cox, Director of the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland. In this episode, recorded on the 3rd of March 2016, Dr Janet Greenlease, Senior Lecturer at the Glasgow Caledonian University and Deputy Director of the Centre for the Social History of Health and Healthcare, reads her paper entitled The Tenuous Relationship Between Gender, Health and Work in Britain and America, 1860 to 1960. The chair for this paper was Dr Fiacre Byrne. Welcome everyone to this, the uh, second seminar in the semester series of the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland's speakers. Just before we begin, uh, I guess I should just thank the Wellcome Trust for funding the Janet Greenleaf to come over here, for which we're all very grateful for to have such a an eminent speaker and researcher uh, to address this. And it's uh, important, I think, for Irish researchers as well, as well as to hear our own research, also to have contact with established international speakers like Janet. So I'm sure you all know who she is, but just to uh, refresh your memories, uh, she's a senior lecturer in Glasgow Caledonian University and also the deputy director of the Centre for the Social History of Health and Healthcare. Uh, Since completing her PhD in 2000 in New York, um, she's focused on the history of health, and there's been a particular emphasis throughout her work on this kind of comparative dimension between Britain and America, which is ultimately part of her talk today, I believe. Uh, And there's been, within that, a particular focus on industrial and occupational health, um, and especially of uh, women. Uh, And in 2007, she had a monograph entitled Female Labour Power, uh, and you're currently working on another monograph, I mm-hmm. believe, researching that. Uh, it's on the textile industries in England and America, which I guess this talk is part of that research. obsession, really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good obsession. And looking there at the intersections between contagious disease and occupational health. And she's also, I think, completing a report on mother and baby homes in Scotland, uh, which I guess we'll all look forward to reading too, and there'll be a lot of interest in that here. And she's widely published in journals and such as the Social History of Medicine, Medical History and Urban History, and she's an editor of uh, numerous edit- collected volumes such as Caring for the Poor in 20th Century Britain and Western Maternity and Medicine. So I'd just like to extend again our, our welcome to Janet for joining us here and uh, taking the time to address us. Well, thank you, and thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's very nice of you and for inviting me over too. Um, This paper um, today has developed out of a book project, and I kind of got sidetracked with what I'm going to talk about today. Um, But the book project is with Rutgers University Press, where I'm looking at the intersection of public health and the working environment in Britain and America, and how this relationship developed during the 19th and 20th century, and how the two influenced each other towards change or lack thereof. Um, And one of the issues um, that I found particularly interesting was gender um, and how workers, male and female, understood and addressed the perceived health risks um, in the two countries. And in particular today, I want to explore their experiences of ill health at work when they worked alongside each other and their responses in managing health and in seeking reforms to an unhealthy working environment. And the result became um, a multi-layered narrative involving employers, workers, politicians, social reformers, purveyors of medicines, 
um, including street vendors, with the different groups of actors being important in different situations as both individuals and groups of men and women daily calculated the health risks associated with work and who sought to address such risks within the boundary of what they deemed acceptable working conditions and when that boundary was crossed. Now, this boundary was fluid, um, and it only sometimes corresponded with either trade union or political agendas. Um, And also workers' agency varied, too, within the story, depending on the relevant constraints. So you have the personal constraints of do you need to work, make some money for your family, Um, industrial economic collective inertia, you know, the state of the economy for the industry, state of the local labor market, um, with national impetuses playing only a minor influence on how work is addressed ill health and its causes. Now, for a case study, um, after that introduction, you were probably a guest. I've chosen the cotton textile manufacturing communities of Lancashire and New England. But the reason why is in the decades surrounding 1900, this was one of the few trades in both countries where men and women could work alongside each other, performing the same tasks at the same rates of pay and experiencing, and experiencing the same workplace health hazards. And although both industries began a long decline from the interwar years, the poor conditions and the associated ill health continued. While workers' understandings of health and their responses to unhealthy conditions evolved to incorporate some of the developments in biomedicine. And so to try and get at the workers' experience for um, the sources, because of the time frame, I've managed to find um, many collections of textile workers' oral histories from both countries. Um, and most of these collections were done in the 1970s and 1980s when the two industrial regions realized that um, you've got industries in decline, you know, economies that had relied completely on one industry, and they wanted to capture the whole working experience. And so they went out and collected loads of all testimony, stuck it in an archive, and it's pretty much been sitting there um, waiting for someone to come and use it. Now, these were life histories, so not everybody mentioned health. Um, and I'm only going to use a few examples today in quotes. But the conclusions I come to about workers' responses to the unhealthy um, working conditions are based on approximately between 40 to 80 life, textile life histories from each country, um, as well as some of the contemporary writers from um, some of the workers' diaries and memoirs, um, all inter- mixed in with um, government medical reports, um, employers' and trade union records. But before I turn to workers' responses, I thought a bit of contextual background is needed for the story. Firstly, there is a notion of a bit of a regional um, disease and regional illness and health problems. Um, as you well know, the cotton industry is one of the pillars of industrialization, but in particular towns, um, they became synonymous with the cotton manufacturing, Blackburn, Burnley, Bolton, Preston, Aldham, um, you know, all solid cotton towns. But they differed in that um, in towns where the cotton textile manufacturing dominated the economy, such as Blackburn and Burnley, you'd have both men and women entering the mills and spending their working life, often interspersed um, with breaks, but in the mills. Whereas towns with more diverse economies, such as Bolton or Preston, there were greater employment opportunities for men, while textiles remained a higher paid option for females. So um, again, to look at comparisons, I've been trying to focus more on the towns where you had the whole community um, in the mills, because that's where you're more likely to have the men and women working alongside each other. And again, as you might be aware with the Factory um, Acts, regulation is very gradual 
and it was piecemeal, and it was aimed more at restricting women's labour than actually reforming conditions. And again, we have a regional story in uh, Massachusetts too, um, and it follows the rivers, uh, which conveniently there. You have Lowell, and then Lawrence is just um, about 40 minutes away from Lowell. Um, and then down here, you have Fall River and New Bedford as key textile towns. And then there were a few along the Connecticut River in the, in the western part of the state. But most of my story is on the eastern side of Massachusetts because, again, those were the biggest um, cotton towns. And again, they employed men, women, and sometimes children. And around the turn of the 20th century, increased immigration. There's clearly a ready supply of labor for the mills. Um, and with low wages requiring more than one family member working to sustain the household, you often ended up with several members in the mills. And indeed, the 1905 census identified that over half the weavers of cotton goods in America were women and young people. Um, so this concentration of um, cotton textile manufacturing in the particular areas of the two countries you sort of have a regional component to occupational disease and a regional component to the regulation, but, more, but also for our story, there's sort of a transnational influence because in both countries, health and safety laws, evolution of factory inspection, um, it, they were strongly shaped by what the experiences in the mills, but also these two regions were looking at each other as what they were doing in terms of regulation for um, in the mills. Now, part of this was obviously to try and get an economic advantage, but they are comparing um, condition, mill conditions and enforcement as well. So that's sort of the regional context. There's also, very briefly, um, the historiographical context. Um, and I decided to do it through pictures, really, rather than um, long elaboration of the historiography, because it's combining looking at the industrial history. Um, lots of work has been done on industrial structure and strategy and broader issues surrounding gender and work. Um, if we look specifically at health, though, um, where tech, in occupational health, it, stories have been dominated by the male experiences, looking at risk, culture of masculinities, politics of compensation. Um, but women's experiences of occupational ill health have been related to their behavior rather than their occupation. Or it's been overlooked due to wartime necessities, particularly during the Great War. Or the ill workers have been removed from the health debates, with the focus instead turning to maternal or child welfare. And more broadly, if you look at labor histories, they've marginalized women's contributions um, to trade unions and indeed the broader um, labor movement. And so overall, um, the historiography about industrial illness, it emphasizes capital, capitalist neglect, official indifference, and compensation rather than looking at the actual health experiences or health and safety standards. So if we narrow that down to um, the health context of the regions, Industrial accidents often feature in parliamentary papers, and they're certainly frequent features in the social rhetoric. But if you look at a table of statistics, um, and this is a table for Britain, fatalities in cotton manufacturing were few, uh, um, as in 0.007% chance. And the figures are similar for Massachusetts, which was the leading cotton manufacturing state in America. So you're not likely to die working in the mills, but instead um, you're more likely to get chronic um, conditions, and indeed most of the occupational hazards were chronic. Um, so the health risks, they're well recorded in um, 
the factory inspectors' reports and novels. Long hours and the grueling pace of work caused fatigue and migraines. Um, the cotton and size dust caused or exacerbated multiple respiratory problems, all with similar symptoms, so it's difficult to distinguish them. Um, bronchitis, pneumonia, tu- tuberculosis, and longer-term bisonosis, the X-ray at the bottom. A bisonosis is a respiratory disease where the lungs are gradually filled with cotton dust after years in the mill, and as you might imagine, it restricts the breathing. Now, it only required a medical name between 1885 and 1890, um, but it was much longer after that before doctors and employers and even workers recognized what the problem actually was. Um, And it was a particular problem in raw cotton processing, but also in the weaving rooms, um, the weavers, if you see in the top right, um, that weaver's uh, using her mouse to thread the shuttle and suck the thread through a small hole. There was concern that, um, that uh, we didn't inhale dust and dirt by doing that, as well as um, contract contagious diseases because shuttles were shared. And then, then in addition, um, we have the heat and the humidity, um, particularly in the weaving rooms. It contributes to high levels of respiratory illness, TB, pneumonia, bronchitis, and could cause rheumatism. And um, the excessive machine noise could cause deafness. And the noise levels in weaving rooms were similar to that of a nightclub today. Um, I had to look up because I wasn't sure how loud a weave room was. Well, it's um, between 90 and 100 decibels, really. And nightclubs are apparently at a similar level, to give you some kind of context. Um, And in terms of these hazards and how they progressed over time, many of them only worsened during the course of the century and into the 20th as the pace of machines and the pace of work quickened. There was minimal technological intervention, which meant many of the machines in use in 1950 were the same as in 1880, and hence the conditions were fairly similar. There had been very little improvement. So combined, despite the fact there's few fatalities, the the risks were sufficient for the governments of both Britain and Massachusetts, where such legislation was down to state in America. They defined cotton manufacturing as a dangerous trade. But despite that, they did little to regulate the conditions of work. And where it was implemented, it was regularly breached and had limited impact on reducing the health risks at work. So, for example, in 1903, there were 569 recorded breaches of the British Cotton Cloth Factories Act, which regulated the heat and humidity, but then there were many that went unrecorded, and not to mention the fact that most mill workers never actually saw a factory inspector because um, the inspectorate was grossly understaffed. And the situation in Massachusetts was similar. There had been studies by the Bureau of Labor about um, dust, the dusty trades from 1903, but preventive legislation was lacking, um, except for a 1911 ban of the suction shuttle from public health fears about tuberculosis. So legislation had clearly a very limited impact on reducing health risks in cotton manufacturing, and instead, responsibility for the working conditions and managing them lay with the employers and the workers. I'll take the employers first. The cotton manufacturers, they tended to blame workers for their accidents and their own ill health. And I've got a 1920 quote here from um, the American Textile Manufacturers Journal. And it had been reiterated in testimony to the state um, over the previous 50 years. 
um, and which government officials largely seem to have accepted, that basically textile workers are apt to be careless, ignorant of the dangers of infections and disease, and not always cleanly. If if we turn to Lancashire, some of these same phrases are going to come up. They similarly blamed the workers for much of their own ill health. They live in overcrowded housing. They're careless with their diet and habits, make for ill health. um, And again, another one from, you know, the conditions of home. Um, They've got to do with sickness. So they're blaming the workers for their living conditions as well as their own ill health. So they're deflecting responsibility back to the workers, their lifestyle, and their carelessness. Health problems were the fault and prevention, the responsibility of the workers. If you add to that, employers in both countries argued that conditions couldn't be too bad because there was never any mass protest about conditions. And if you didn't have mass protest, how could there be a problem in the mills? And to that end, we do need to accept that workers did have to balance the health risks associated with any job with those of not working and particularly no income. But we also have to take into account local variations of conditions and even variations within mills within communities, which would make mass collective actions about workplace ill health difficult. And you hear many um, workers, both male and female, saying, oh, the conditions in the mill varied. And I'll just give you a couple examples. In Oldham, quite a few, um, there was a series of um, oral histories done in Oldham, um, and several workers mentioned how good the conditions were at the Monarch Mill and how bad they were at the Burr Mill. They were dirty, filthy, dust flying everywhere, and they actively sought to work in the Monarch Mill. If you cross the Atlantic to Lowell, the Merrimack Mills and the Hamilton Mills in Lowell had good reputations, again, for being cleanly, less dust, um, nice place to work, whereas the Boot Mills of Lowell had the notorious reputation as having the worst conditions in the industry, and they're less than a half a mile apart in the city. So not only other, um, and I'll come back to that in a bit later when I talk about workers' strategy for dealing with it, um, but, uh, um, and that they actively sought to work in some of the better mills. But basically, um, workers were left to address the unhealthy working conditions as they saw fit. Now, actively changing employers was one way, um, and before I look at some of the other ways they tried to manage the unhealthy working environment, um, I just want to talk a little bit about how they actually understood health or ill health. Um, and you might imagine these are tempered by the living environment, um, overcrowding, poverty, poor sanitation. Um, for both Lancashire and New England, it's fairly well known. Um, the two pictures on the left are from Fall River, um, and the two pictures on the right are from Blackburn. Um, and the bottom one from Blackburn is, I think, from 1960. You still have people living in very crowded houses. Um, the public health initiatives and the agendas of the different Lancashire town councils suggested variations in living and working conditions between communities. And certainly, if you look at Medical Officer of Health reports, um, the conditions and the public health initiatives are quite different between the different textile communities. And if you look at in Massachusetts as well, there's considerable variation between communities, with the Fall River living conditions reputedly some of the worst and indeed rivaling those in parts of Lancashire. Um, whereas most um, histories tend to say that con- living conditions were slightly better in America than in Lancashire. So within each region, and indeed within each town, the importance of the living and working environment on the public health agenda fluctuated. 
which made it very difficult to have a unified labor campaign for industrial health reform when conditions are so different. And lastly, we need to consider the social factors of gender, um, and particularly in the case of Britain. The social factors meant that Lancashire women's health was frequently weaker than men's, much more so than their New England counterparts, except for the universal impact of pregnancy. American wages were higher than the Lancashire counterparts. Nevertheless, the diet, quantity, and quality of food varied between towns. Now, they've done archaeological digs in Lowell, as a part of the National um, Park projects, and they've revealed that skilled workers on higher pay, perhaps unsurprisingly, had a better quality food than unskilled workers. Yet even the unskilled single workers who lived in boarding houses, they had plenty to eat, and there was no gender difference in diet, quantity, or quality. While during the textile recession of the interwar years, families in Lowell strove to ensure three square meals a day for all family members. In Fall River, and this is a bit of a contrast to Lowell, in the late 19th century, Fall River workers had a very poor diet in terms of quality and quantity, um, but yet gender variations were not noted. Instead, um, the testimony suggests that the vital contribution of several family members to the household budget meant they earned their share, an equal share, of the available food. <clears throat> in comparison, Lancashire diets tended to be more meager than in New England. And when times were hard, it was the women and the young girls who usually had the smallest portion at the family mealtimes, lowering their resistance to disease and making more difficult the long days in the mills. Now, social reformers emphasized women's primary role to be that of the mother and the homemaker and prioritized morality over the multiple contributing factors to women's ill health, including hunger. While family circumstance determined whether American women needed to enter the paid labor force on a short-term, intermittent, or long-term basis, American society more broadly acknowledged women as essential contributors to the economy. And it was combined that these factors suggest that perhaps Lancashire women textile workers may have been physically weaker than both their American counterparts and the male colleagues in terms of their ability to cope with the unhealthy working conditions. So, um, move on to what the workers did and their knowledge of the ill health caused by work. Now, their knowledge is immediate. They're not thinking long-term damage and long-term suffering. It's the day-to-day issues. And this is particularly um, evident with dust. Both male and female workers, they realized quite obviously that you know, it's not very comfortable to inhale cotton dust all day, but they didn't understand the physiological implications of dust inhalation. And that's quite evident um, and these workers were working in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And clearly from these quotes, you know, if anyone would have told me that this would happen, I wouldn't have gone in the mills. You know, bisonosis suffers. You, you never told anything about um, bisonosis. It was noisy, it was dusty. Um, frightening place to be. And they didn't recognize, even into the mid-20th century, quite the long potential for long-term damage. Now, the trade union representatives were familiar with the term bisonosis, and they understood the associated disease etiology, but this knowledge was not widely disseminated amongst the workforce. In Britain, from before the Great War, trade union campaigns had sought to, fought to secure compensation for male bisonosis sufferers, and they finally succeeded in 1941, suggesting that 
a few men were aware of the health impact for many years of working in dusty rooms. Bisonosis compensation was not extended to women until 1948 because they didn't think women could get bisonosis. Um, and indeed, as evidenced in these quotes, many women interviewees were unaware of the hazards. The gendered understanding of the dust disease relationship translated to unions and compensation, not reform and not education. Now, in contrast, in, Mass in America, it was 1969 before bisonosis was recognized as a disease by the American Medical Association, and by that time, the industry had left New England. And again, we have some quotes from workers who um, worked, these worked in the mills in the 20s, 30s, 40s, <clears throat> um, and um, I think Grace Burke was still working in the mills in the 1950s, when, in the boot mills when it closed. Um, nevertheless, New England workers, they understood inhaling dust made them feel unwell. And while bisonosis was not too prevalent in Massachusetts, um, simply because the industry had moved further south by the Second World War, it was common in the cotton towns of the south. However, state agencies there did little too, feeling that regulation might cause economic hardship to an industry that was losing out to overseas competition. And yet this latter rhetoric of economic hardship, it was utilized in the 19th and early 20th century by regional and federal or, and state officials in New England and Lancashire to avoid addressing unhealthy workplaces. Yet if you look at the textile workers' oral histories from both countries, it suggests that while men and women workers recognized the short-term work health relationship between dust and respiratory problems, they did not recognize the long-term respiratory damage associated with dust inhalation. And they rarely possessed a medical language to identify it. And if they don't have the language or the medical understanding, trying to seek reform or compensation was difficult. It's a similar story with industrial deafness. Workers could not avoid the deafening noise of the machines. And well into the 20th century, they, were knew, they knew that long-term exposure um, caused them to lose their hearing but it was never classed as dangerous. And if we look at Massachusetts um, operatives' comments about noise, no, nobody knew about industrial deafness. It would drive you out of your mind, but we didn't know it could hurt you. Um, you had to get, if you wanted to talk to someone, you had to get up close and holler. Um, and you know, John Falante went, went to his doctor, and even the doctor said, just forget it. You know, that's from those noises all day. You can't do anything about deafness. So instead um, of being able to do something about the noise, there was no industrial reform. Nobody even considered trying to address the machines. The machines were associated with a job for the workers, for employers, for profit, um, for towns. You know, it sort of indicates the thriving economy of the town. Instead, the workers tried to compensate for hearing loss by either shouting or communicating with their hands um, in a crude type of sign language, or in Lancashire, um, mill workers were well known for the ability to lip read. And Lancashire mill workers, too, um, also comp um, complained about the noise, but you just got on with it. Um, they didn't, you know, they, again, they didn't seem to bother about people going deaf. People just accepted it um, as part of the job. And again, 
you know, noise, it's a gradual, or sorry, industrial deafness is a gradual problem. Friends and neighbors don't really react to it because, you know, it's a very slow process of going deaf. So deafness became a socially accepted problem that could be overcome or perhaps managed might be a better phrase, um, and one in which science, society, labor, and politics had very little interest. And medicine also marginalized industrial deafness when in 1911, Massachusetts legislature acknowledged that certain occupations associated with loud noises produced permanent injury to the ear, including weaving, deafness was not considered a serious handicap for weavers that it was for other occupation. Instead, it was merely an inconvenience. And indeed, um, employers picked up on this, and by the 1920s, they were arguing that partial deafness or it would not be surprising if it were demonstrated that the continuous sound vibrations thus generated actually improved the hearing of many partially deaf persons. And they were also arguing that partial deafness could be improved. Um, and sorry, going partly deaf would actually help you manage the conditions. Now, true audiometric techniques weren't developed until the 1920s, and it was 1942 before a hearing impairment formula had been developed and accepted by the American Medical Association. So it was the 1940s before medical consensus um, was found about the boundary between hearing loss and deafness, as well as pinpointing the cause. But for employers, it was quite easy to use it to their advantage. If we cross the Atlantic, similarly, the British Industrial Health Research Board in the 1930s, they conducted experiments about the effects of excessive noise on weaver's efficiency. And in 1935, they concluded that it may be doubted whether complete immunity from the inimical effects of excessive noise can ever be acquired so long as normal hearing is retained. But more importantly, the development of partial deafness appears to be the only effective protection that an individual can acquire. So in other words, nothing can be done, um, and when they go partially deaf, it will be better for the individual. And all this, again, it clearly plays into the employer's hands. And yet, um, my little um, sub-quote at the bottom, it shows just how far behind or how unwilling both Britain and America were to look at noise, because um, between 1929 and 1936, five countries recognized noise-induced deafness as an occupation disease eligible for compensation. Um, under certain conditions, including unusual ones, you might think, um, the Soviet Union, Bulgaria, Mexico, Czechoslovakia, and Germany. Um, so it's clearly some countries are recognizing the hazards of industrial noise, whereas both Britain and America are choosing at this time to ignore it. So how did they cope with um, all these conditions when clearly the medical community is not overly concerned, neither are employers, and workers are recognizing only the short-term um, an immediate impact? Well, many of their coping strategies were just part of their daily routine of managing their health and their ill health. And a lot of their coping strategies tended to be individual. But they had commonalities and parallels between manufacturing regions. For example... Dust inhalation caused workers to cough and sometimes to vomit. So to try and remove the dust from their mouth and lungs, the workers would spit. And when this didn't work, both men and women which might chew tobacco to help induce coughing in order to clear the airways. Now, social observers in both countries considered this a disgusting habit, particularly amongst women. And they also argued that spitting spread disease. 
But for the workers themselves, spitting served a practical preventive health function. So you have sort of the public health um, agenda of trying to prevent tuberculosis and the spread of contagious diseases, seeing the workers spitting and thinking it's a disgusting habit, um, people spitting everywhere and particularly chewing tobacco, um, whereas the workers finding it as simply a way to clear their lungs um, of dust. Now, they adopted other um, strategies, too. As I mentioned earlier, workers regularly changed employers, not simply for better wages, and particularly in um, Britain, where um, you had regional wage rates being set. They changed um, employers seeking better conditions. And it was particularly common for women, because women had fewer opportunities to climb the mill career ladder. And in America, as the New England textile industry started to decline, new light industries moved in to replace it. And so um, there was a mass exodus of women to, to get into these light industries, which provided better pay and better conditions. Whereas in Lancashire, women had fewer employment opportunities. And so throughout the period of study, through the 1960s, they continued to seek employers who provided better conditions. But obviously, you can't always switch employers for whatever reason, and sometimes it did not alleviate the ill health. And despite the increasing power and reach of biomedicine, workers in both countries used traditional medicine and herbal remedies and turned to kinship and friendship networks and wise women for advice on how to deal with it. And there was a huge market in patent medicines to try and alleviate various discomforts, including those from work. Now, women learned about these remedies in the mills from listening to conversations of older women or directly seeking advice. And it was particularly common with patent medicines. They were cheap and they're popular. In Britain, the pharmaceutical firm of Beecham's started in Lancashire, where there's a ready market for their medicine. And their adverts claimed that Beecham's pills cured consumption, fatigue, and women's problems. And they advertised in the textile workers' um, newspaper, the Cotton Factory Times. And in 1918, for example, they advertised that Beecham's pills were designed for weary women workers. They could prevent or cure fatigue. And indeed, in the imagery on the far left for the Beecham's advert, you have the women as um, the patients, and then the bottom left you have the male doctor. And there's quite a few adverts for Beecham's pills, and it's always the woman who's taking the Beecham's pills. Um, And when there is a picture of a man, he's always the doctor. In New England, Father John's medicine is perhaps the most famous patent medicine, and that acquired its name from the Lowell priest, Father John O'Brien, in 1855. Now, unlike another well-known New England patent medicine, Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound, which in 1906 was found to comprise 15% alcohol, Father John's medicine contained no alcohol. It initially comprised cod liver oil with licorice flavoring, and after 50 years, the ingredients remained virtually the same. And in fact, you can still buy it today. Widely available, Father John's medicine claimed to cure consumption, grip, croup, whooping cough, and other diseases of the throat. It was a remedy for all lung and throat troubles. It was a bodybuilder, a health food, a nutritive blood, and nerve tonic. And it's claimed that all disease was due to rundown condition of the body, unhealthy tissues, blood poisoned by impurities, lungs poisoned by impurities, and general weakness. And it guaranteed to revive the worker, and it guaranteed um, its restorative powers. 
in their advertising anyways. Um, and such advertising certainly would have addressed the many ills of textile markets, and clearly there was a sizable medical market in um, the textile towns. And when they've done archaeological work, they've found lots of bottles, like similar to that brown one up there, of Father John's medicine in um, Lowell. But the marketing strategies of the patent medicines differed between the two countries. Beecham's adverts, there's many pictures of the patients, primarily women patients, whereas Father John's medicine stressed his personal product endorsement, suggesting that a tar- large target market was were the large number of Catholic immigrants seeking work in Lowell. Nevertheless, women remained the probable target audience because they were in charge of the household's health. By the 1920s, advertising firms had clearly identified women as the core purchasers of medicine, and they targeted her in advertising family remedies in America. And lastly, because both Beecham's and Father John's medicines were developed in textile regions, occupational maladies, or at least those of textile workers, may well have provided one of their early target markets as they got themselves established, particularly with the large female workforce, who in both countries were the primary purchasers of medicines for the whole family. So in that sense, it's unsurprising that they targeted um, women women with the marketing strategies. So those are some of the individual ways um, that women... uh, Uh, well, women and men workers tried to cope or manage the daily hazards of work, but there were also collective strategies, and it's evident through some of their cooperation networks um, in terms of how they managed the heat and humidity and the pace of work. Workers would watch colleagues' machines to enable um, workers to have breaks or to help a struggling colleague, for example, to lift something that was heavy. And neighboring workers might help an individual keep up when they were sick or pregnant. And such informal networks, they secure little written documentation, yet they pop up in oral histories, like almost as if it was, it was sort of a bypass. Of course we um, helped each other. You know, it was common, co- cooperation. That's how we got by. But collectively and individually, um, these cooperative networks, informal, allowed workers to keep earning when unwell. And indeed, there's no consistent narrative um, surrounding how mill workers coped with an unhealthy workplace. It was simply part of life. Managing health at work was just part of life, same as managing health in the home. So it was primarily informal and it was not overtly gendered. Instead, gender was entwined with working class approaches to an unhealthy workplace through custom, with the custom being the women, woman was in charge of the family health care. But cooperation was universal. But that said... If conditions became unbearable, operatives did go on strike. But they tend not to get huge reports because they tended to be local um, actions. And quite often these protests happened outside those organized by trade unions because trade unions were trying to look at things to benefit all workers and because conditions were so different in different communities and with different mills within them, they tended to often fall outside the radar of the trade unions. But if you look in the newspaper, New England newspapers record Mill's voluntary closing for a few days in summer due to heat, but they also mention stories of operatives walking out and effectively shutting the mills when the weather was too hot to work. <clears throat> for example, 1873, women operatives walked out in Lawrence mills in Lo- the Lawrence Mills in Lowell due to poor ventilation. 1903, and again in 1912, they walked out and, um, they, and struck 
um, for higher wages and better and healthier conditions in the mills. Now, the success of um, strikes and walkouts was fairly limited, um, and these are some of the, just some of the clips from um, the newspapers. While um, the success is fairly limited, they do reveal how working-class cooperation um, meant that um, you know, the workers of different nationalities came together, even when they didn't speak a common language, to prioritize dignity, autonomy, conditions, and wages. Moreover, in the protests, as on the shop floor, women worked alongside men to organize strikes and as participants. And in fact, of the recorded spontaneous walkouts, newspaper accounts suggest that most New England protests were started and led by women rather than men. This is spontaneous walkouts due to conditions. Now, this doesn't imply that men were any less interested than women in working conditions. It merely highlights the importance of working conditions to women in New England. This wasn't quite the case in Britain. In Lancashire, male and female operatives walked out when the moisture was excessive. So in Burnley and Padiham in 1895 and 1913 in Blackburn and Burnley and Preston in the 1930s, um, the operatives walked out of the mills, saying it was too hot and humid. There were impromptu strikes staged at mills that were too cold as well, such as in Nelson and Oldham and Burnley in 1918. And working conditions, there were enough strikes um, to show that working conditions were equally important to workers as wages. And in 1910, the Blackburn and District um, Powerloom Weavers, Winders, and Warpers Association argued that weavers were even willing to receive less wages if they can bring about the abolition of artificial humidity. That, to our minds, gives us the possibility of arriving at only one conclusion, namely that the system is considered and believed to be so injurious to their health that weavers are prepared to face other difficulties rather than carry on their vocation under its operation. And that's just one of um, several examples of um, localized trade unions um, making the case for their particular town that the conditions in the mills were so bad. Uh, dust, usually it was the heat and humidity, um, but there's occasional mention of dust that workers were willing to um, sacrifice wages and walk out just to try and bring around an improvement. So certainly such collective action, be it spontaneous or organized locally within the smaller um, trade unions, it um, demonstrates that um, although you know, they accept the working conditions might not always be ideal, the collective action helps counter the argument that the Lancashire working class has historically accepted their lot. And that's popped up in work, um, most notably Elizabeth Roberts' um, oral histories of Lancashire women, um, but also some of the other story, um, stories out there too. As for the government, their interest in the working environment declined as industrial survival took priority. And throughout this entire period, you don't see too much in the way of government involvement. For example, in Lancashire, in 1935, the Industrial Health Research Board investigated noise in the weaving sheds, and they came to the conclusion that it seriously impaired hearing and impeded production. And so um, the, the IHRB actually was showing that you know, production would improve if you improved conditions. But the government accepted the employer's argument that industrial reforms were too expensive. And the government demonstrated a similar disinterest to complaints about eye strain and fatigue. 
Such apathy towards the working environment helps explain the operative's growing preference for individual and their cooperative coping strategies. They're not going to get the support. They don't have the support of the doctors. They don't have the support of the government for reforms. So who can they rely on themselves and fellow workers? So during the interwar years and later, Lancashire mill workers regularly switched employers or they walked out. And in both countries, mill workers still spat. They still self-medicated. But now they were starting to utilize some of the formal health care providers for health. Some companies in both countries had welfare officers, or what they were called welfare officers in Lancashire, or company nurses um, in America. And after 1948, with the National Health Service um, in Britain, again, workers made use of those services too. But these are reactive rather than preventive actions. Nevertheless, such actions reveal that operatives did not simply accept the poor working conditions, even after the British government formally ignored the working environment by not including an occupational health service in the original mandate for the NHS. Instead, industrial decline contributed to a shifting working class consciousness where individual initiatives increasingly replaced rather than paralleled collective action. Moreover, in both countries, throughout these struggles to address a poor working environment, gender was less important to the working classes than it was to the politicians or indeed um, to social reformers, where the priorities tend to be morality or indeed the male experience. Instead, what I found from looking at um, the um, testimony of uh, textile workers is that working con- conditions were a class issue not a gendered one, and they dealt with them as a class. So women's agency in addressing a poor work environment formed part of a broader working class agency in addressing the consequences of industrialization. So just to draw a few um, conclusions, Um, what I've found in the study is that there's no significant difference in the gendered understanding of the work-health relationship or the responses to it in both Britain and America. And to workers, the importance of the working environment was fluid, so that when economic times were bad, yes, they probably would accept worse conditions than um, when the economy was doing better and they had more employment opportunities and more chance to switch employers. So in that sense, the workers were pretty pragmatic and realistic. And indeed, that's what um, Bonnie Johnson and Arthur McIver found with the coal workers um, of Scotland in how they dealt with um, the dust in the coal mines. And also, workers' understanding of the health impact of work were immediate and short-term. They weren't biomedical and they weren't long-term. It was just part of their daily managing of their own health. And their responses to the unhealthy working environment related more to um, the social and economic context of the time and where they lived than they did to gender. And so it highlights the similarities of the industrial experience um, in the two countries. Now, if I did have to say, you know, where, who were the most um, active group of um, operatives in terms of protesting conditions? I would say that collectively, from um, the oral nar- history narratives, that New England uh, women textile workers were perhaps the most proactive operatives in both countries in protesting conditions um, through actively switching employers to walking out in spontaneous protests. And indeed, though, for, in both countries, it was the women operatives who were more likely to switch employers for better conditions than men. And with that, thank you very much.